Hi everyone, thanks so much for tuning in. Before we get started, I just have a few short messages. First off, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe this podcast. It's the best way to help us grow and help me get on bigger and better guests. Also, don't forget you can pre-order my book, To the Moon, The GameStop Saga, right now by following the links in the description below. We've also got a few quick sponsors for the show today. Are you bored of TV? Do you like drugs but can't afford them? Are you still paying alimony? Well, maybe it's time to read How to See a Man About a Dog, The Collected Writings. Get your dose of surreal prose and poetry with this dark comedy collection. How to See a Man About a Dog is a collection of experimental short stories, powerful poems, and pulp fiction prose that will take you on a wild, hilarious, and heartbreaking journey. Surrealist short stories, memoiristic poems, and haunting jokes guide you through the wild imagination of emerging writer Samuel Knox. For the reader looking for a wholly original and experimental mixed-media approach to stories, How to See a Man About a Dog is a much-needed fever dream tour de force. How to See a Man About a Dog is a kaleidoscope collage made of equal parts delight and despair. Internationally selling author Samuel Knox blends sci-fi, horror, fantasy, and non-fiction into a single, enrapturing vision of what it means to be human in the modern age. You'll find the ebook on Kindle Unlimited and print copies at Amazon, the Book Depository, Waterstones, and most major retailers. Check out How to See a Man About a Dog now and take a journey through the human experience. It's the month of Halloween and the witching hour is upon us. It's the perfect time to try out one of the spookiest and most intriguing crime podcasts I have ever come across. How I Died is a fiction podcast with a full cast of voice actors and high-quality production value. The series follows John Spacer, who moves to the small town of Springfield, albeit a much less yellow or cheery version of The Simpsons' hometown, and is confronted with a case he's not so sure he can handle on his own. A woman found dead with her husband and child both missing. In episode one, John begins to hear the voice of the dead woman on his table, and he talks to her as he deciphers just how she might have died. No one knows about John's gift, and he has to hide it from his boss, an untrusting sheriff who is always looking over his shoulder. The first two seasons of the show are available on all podcast apps, but be warned, these stories are not for the faint-hearted. The series is for adult audiences, covering topics of murder, threats of violence, and stalking. How I Died has passed over 1 million downloads since its launch, with a vibrant community, all trying to solve mysteries along with the show. So that's How I Died. Find it wherever you get your podcasts and see if you can solve the mystery before it is too late. Links for everything will be in the description below. So check them out and then please enjoy the podcast. Hi, everyone. Unfortunately, we lost the first couple of minutes of recording due to streaming problems. However, all you missed was an intro with me saying, welcome to the show, Dr. Thornhill, and then him introducing himself as an expert in the concept of parasite stress, which essentially suggests that the higher the level of infectious disease in a country, the more likely they are to trend towards right-wing authoritarianism. It's a fascinating concept and should really be closely looked at in the current situation that we're living under. So enjoy the interview. Very, very, uh, very, very localized. You can even get 
different strains of TB in different uh, neighborhoods in Morocco, for example. Mm. You get different strains of Lashmaniasis in different villages uh, that are even a few miles apart and so forth. Uh, so you get this localization of infectious disease, which means that you have, you're relatively immune to the local diseases, but not the diseases from the outside. Hence, xenophobia protects you from those diseases on the outside. Ethnocentrism is important because you have all this uh, localized uh, social support and so forth, um, strong, uh, strong social support that is important for dealing with infectious diseases when they come. And philopatry is important because it, you just stay home. You're not encountering new habitats and distant places and so forth that will have uh, diseases that you're not immune to. So the parasite stress theory of values is very fundamentally attached to our knowledge of how host parasite infectious diseases work. So that's, that's the core of the theory. And we've tested the theory in uh, a number of ways. It is now a big research area in lots of places across the world. And I'm extremely excited about that. Other scientists have picked it up. Uh, they're, they're, they're looking at spinoffs, new ideas, applications. It's just a very, very exciting time for this theory. But the, the tests we started out with are as follows. So you take infectious disease levels across regions. Mm -hmm. So we did countries. We did countries first, and country data for infectious disease uh, you get from a World Health Organization and organizations like that to track infectious disease levels all the time. And infectious disease levels uh, are quantified in two ways: you have number of infectious diseases in a region, say a country. You have and, and you have the prevalence of the infectious diseases, and those two variables are almost perfectly correlated. So, more infectious diseases in the country, the more people have those infectious diseases in that country. So, those data were available for basically all the countries of the world. There are two hundred about two hundred countries of the world. So, we took the data from the infectious disease and then look at the data that uh, political scientists and cross-cultural psychologists have published in the literature on core values in the countries. And prediction, of course, is that more infectious disease, more conservatism across countries. And that's indeed what we found. Then we started looking at this U.S. state level, and there are good data for infectious disease from the Centers for Disease Control. They uh, keep data on uh, infectious disease levels in all the states of the U.S. And so we looked and uh, their literature, uh, in the literature, their data on Corbeas uh, of people across the states of the U.S., so the 50 states. And again, the prediction is as infectious disease increases across the states, you get more conservative people, and that is true. So those kinds of predictions we looked at. Then, um, then pretty, pretty quickly after we published our initial stuff in the scientific literature, uh, experimental psychologists got on the parasite stress theory, looking at it and taking it into the laboratory. And they showed that you can take people and bring them into the laboratory and show them a series of slides, visual slides that have um, immediate disease threat in them. So have a person with skin pox, face of a person with skin pox, 
a, a dirty toilet, a person sneezing, those kinds of things. There are 10 uh, slides that comprise that group of slides that are used experimentally. And when people see these slides, they immediately become more conservative. Mm. You measure their values before you show them the slides, you measure their values after the slides. So the shift in values is immediate and the people get more xenophilic. They get more uh, introverted. Introversion is a component of personality that's part of this part of this uh, system we're talking about too. So you can think of it as people have two immune systems. You have the classical immune system, which is the T cells and the thymus and the spleen and uh, those sorts of things that you learn about in uh, immunology class at university. Classical, that's the first part of the immune system uh, that was discovered by biologists and has received the most attention. But we also have the behavioral immune system in people. And it's the psychological and behavioral mechanisms by which we detect, avoid, and manage infectious disease. And here, values are part of the behavioral immune system. Disgust is an important emotion in the behavioral immune system and so forth. But values are part of the behavioral immune system. So, uh, and in aspects of personality as well. So introversion is uh, protective. It's, you know, it's socially, social caution. Introversion is social caution. And um, you're very cautious about who you interact with. You're careful. Extroverts, I interact with everybody. And that's extroversion associated with liberalism, introversion with uh, conservatism. So the people looking at these slides, they're shifting to more xenophobia, they're shifting to more introversion and, um, and less uh, openness, I measure that, uh, openness to new ideas and so forth is reduced to just upon seeing these slides. New research going on now is looking at, you just take people and you give them a, 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 a fake news clip that talks about COVID being really uh, prevalent in your in your region, in your city, and so forth. That causes these same psychological shifts we're talking about toward more conservatism. So we're very, very sensitive to um, in information in the environment about infectious disease, and it affects, uh, it shifts our values. With regard to the lab stuff I mentioned, where you take people in, you show them the slides, Conservatives, people who measure conservative up front at the beginning, shift more to these uh, disease threats than do people who measure uh, liberal uh, at the onset. So the conservatives are very, very sensitive. And conservatism, is uh, it, it overshoots. It, it generalizes adaptively. That is, it, we say it accepts a lot of false positives adaptively. So anything that is different from the usual for highly conservative people will be seen as bad, something okay. you want to avoid. Okay. And basically, yeah. So people that are obese, people that are too skinny, people, uh, mentally ill people, um, uh, 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 homosexuals, those kinds of biases that conservatives have is all coming out of this overgeneralization of, of the behavioral immune system uh, to cues that are just different than you, what you usually encounter and hence potentially dangerous. So acceptance of uh, 
false positives adaptively. So that's that's the theory and some some of the uh, stuff going on. I mean, the, the traditional tests and even some uh, current tests are going on. Uh, people are looking at um, um, infectious disease levels uh, with COVID and voting uh, partisanship, so political partisanship. Mm-hmm. Uh, nice work in, from Poland, a uh, uh, lot from the U.S. with the uh, 2016 election and so forth, um, support for, you know, proportion of votes for Trump, say, yeah. in the 2016. That's highly correlated, uh, even at the county level. So they're not only doing states now, they got disease data at the U.S. county level, which is nice because you got such a big sample. You got 3,200 uh, counties in the U.S., so you got uh, data on infectious disease in the county, and you got proportion of people that vote for Trump. Mm-hmm. And of course, the more infectious disease, the more support Trump got. Uh, there's a recent uh, recent stuff. France uh, elections uh, recently after COVID started. And uh, more COVID, uh, more COVID problems, more support for conservative uh, French uh, politicians, and Poland too. There's a, a nice study recently published. Mm. So all that's going on. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you've done a fantastic job there of kind of summing up a lot of the, the the your broader work. Obviously, it's your work. You've been talking about it for a while, so I'm sure you're well versed yeah. in it. <laughs> um, so a couple of the things that I wanted to like try and get through here and parse out basically yeah. is um, first up. So I'll just I'll give you like a couple of like sort of points that I'd, I'd like to ask about and then you could because I think they fit together here. So the first yes. is um, this idea that, that uh, the collectivist sort of definition here, you're um, in in this that you there's like a crossover between like collectivism versus individualism and yeah. uh, you're uh assessment of like left versus right um yeah right okay so the thing that is really baffling me about this right is that i was i was trying to think about this on the the three-dimensional political compass um so i think i've got it here okay um yeah okay here it is uh, so basically, you've got authoritarianism at the um, yeah. at the top, sort of libertarianism at the bottom, right and left. So I was kind of imagining, for at least me, that your theory suggests that people will move sort of towards the top right of the political compass um, as they are, yeah, as there's more parasite stress, so that they're becoming both more right wing in a sense and um, more sort of authoritarian, authoritarian and collect uh, so absolutely so it's it's like I should a, have, I should, actually i should have mentioned that uh, authoritarianism according to much political science data is uh, a basic component of conservatism so uh, it is you know a foundation of conservatism and the way it works is it comes out of this traditionalism, respect and love of traditionalism. So you like traditional authority. So you like uh, you like religion, uh, lots of religion, uh, lots of uh, respect for parents um, and uh, traditional government. Uh, so the authoritarians will, you know, if they've got a uh, real, you know, conservative government, 
um, they really are supportive of that. You saw that, you I mean, we've seen it in the United States. It's being studied a lot now. The authoritarians, all the authoritarians following uh, Donald Trump's uh, ideas and so forth. Mm -hmm. And, you know, back, you know, you go all the way back to uh, even more extreme events like the history of Nazism in uh, in uh, Germany uh, and fascism in uh, Italy, fascism in, in uh, Japan. Those arose at the same time out of out of extremely high uh, disease levels associated with the Spanish flu and so forth. Yeah. And that is that has recently been studied for for uh, for Nazi Germany. It's a really cool uh, area of research. So what the what the folk did was actually can I stop you there, Doctor Hill? Because yeah. I want to get to that. Um, but there's yeah. I want to I want to I want to start with this other thing first because I think um, sure because yeah, that's that's a whole another rabbit hole to to go down. <laughs> Um, so the, the thing that I'm, I'm really interested in, so you, we talked about this idea that the, the people are becoming both more right-wing and more author authoritarian under this, uh, under parasite stress, basically. Yes. So the first question I had about this was that I'm, I'm confused as to how exactly your model applies to the reactions we've seen to COVID because the people who so like I, I was like making notes about your your sort of definitions here so the more conservative people yeah. like they've got a belief in like local traditional um they're xenophobic authority um, and conservative authorities yeah, yeah neophobic as well so they're, they're scared of the new they have a preference for their in-group and yeah. traditionally that would have been the people who would have voted the like this to me like it's a, it's a very good definition of say like the the deep South Christian conservative, or at least like the, yeah. the, the stereotype of what they would believe. Right. Right. And, and on the other side, you've got like the, the very open sort of more, uh, artistic, um, liberal side of things that, that would very much line up with the like left wing. Like new ideas, science and all that. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, yeah. Um, you got it. basically I'm baffled by the, just the, because the those who would have traditionally been in those categories seem to have completely flipped as a result of covid like it's it's really confusing me as to like what is causing this because we've seen uh those who would have been traditionally on the right and the, uh, now are very much anti any of the regulations they don't seem to have yeah. like so much fear of of covid or or they don't have so much parasite stress <laughs> Um, right. And on the yeah. other side, it's like made yeah. the left become very concerned about this. And I wondered if yeah. you thought that this, that that what it had done would be to redefine those categories in a way for people, it, because it, it seems that the those who have gone, who have been in support of like the lockdowns and all the the public health measures have yeah. have become very neophobic. And um, they've become, in a way, very ethnocentric, but not in like a traditional like race-based sense, but more in like they've become very ethnocentric in their idea, in their like ideas and like who they want around them. And I wondered if that, if you if you thought there was like something going on there with COVID, or is this just like a another trend that we're seeing kind of overlapping? Because yeah, this is this is just fascinating to me, but baffling at the same time. Let me let me let me uh, uh, let me say, tell you how I think it works. So, 
the authoritarianism, the power of authoritarianism is something that is missed in what you're saying. Because the authoritarian people will literally follow their leader, you know, their conservative leader over the cliff. And as we saw with Nazi Germany, as we saw with fascist Italy and Japan, and as we saw in the U.S., for example, with the followers of Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, he says he says there's no big deal with COVID. It's a hoax. Uh, hate science, all that kind of stuff. Don't believe those scientists. Don't believe it. That's not your that's not your source of, of knowledge. Your source of knowledge is me. Mm-hmm. And. And so they, uh, you know, ignore all that. They just follow him. So therefore, he says, uh, you know, if you wear a mask, you're just trying to be PC. So that 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 authoritarian, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, reverence that authoritarian people have is what is is so important in uh, very conservative people, many very conservative people not being interested in vaccination not being interested in social distancing, not being interested in masking and those kinds of things. And we're getting that uh, in, you know, writ large in the United States still. And it's a tremendous health problem that uh, the authoritarianism of Trump and his followers have created for uh, the, uh, the other people. I mean, the people on the liberal end are using, they're using a different source of knowledge. They're using real knowledge. So what the health experts say and so forth, that influences the way um, liberal-minded people um, deal with their everyday life. So social distancing makes a great deal of sense if you got any uh, understanding of science at all. And um, wearing a mask makes a great deal of sense. Getting vaccinated makes a great deal of sense. And uh, so that's, that's fundamentally at the, at the basis of... Um, your, um, your, um, you know, d- mention your uh, thing you mentioned there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you right? So there's there's a couple of things I wanna I wanna ask about that. So I I I think I think I broadly agree with with what you've said there. It makes sense. But there's like a couple of things that are are in my mind that I'm just thinking yeah. about that that seem to like contradict that. Uh, but perhaps they're they're sort of yeah. You don't think they're yeah relevant or uh, but uh, yeah. like first was that um, this phenomenon where the right wing tend to be very anti-lockdown and that is is not just a, a US-based phenomenon you know it's not it's not just trump supporters because like we we have that in the in the UK it's the the sort of more libertarian right that are opposed to it um whereas it's the left in in britain that tend to be very in favor and i think that that sort of plays out, maybe not to as an extreme an extent as in America, but I think I've seen like that trend appearing in a, in a lot of places. Um, yeah, and it's funny there that you mentioned when when Trump was saying, "Oh, this is no problem. This is no deal. This is not a big deal." But uh, when then recently he was at a rally and said, "Take the vaccine," he got booed. So I, I'm not. I'm yeah. I'm just not 100 percent sold that it's like like Trump exactly or following authoritarianism. I guess I'm 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 sorry. Maybe I'm looking for something that isn't there, but I'm looking for an explanation that fits with everything for me. His his authoritarian followers thought at that rally that he is sold out. Mm. Yeah. So they were they they knew what was right, what he had always said, and what um, you know 
and now he was uh, going along with the with the with the others, mm-hmm. you know, the out group, the out group, mm-hmm. and uh, so um, so libertarianism. Though, if you you know, you look at political science literature, liber- liber- libertarianism is kind of middle road. It's uh, it's not you know so the the values is, is a is a continuum uh, from highly conservative to highly liberal, and um, libertarians more or less will fit right there in the in the middle. So middle of the uh, so they're uh, certainly more liberal than uh, people on the highly conservative end, but they're not as liberal uh, as uh, the highly liberal people. Yeah, that's where they fit. Okay. Yeah. Empirically, yeah. you know, that's what they measured uh, values. That's where should. That's where they fit. Yeah. Okay. So their 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 uh, attitude towards some of these things is um, is associated with their you know their conservative parts. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I was I was curious as to what to what extent you think the this concept of parasite stress is how much of it is like unconsciously there in our biology and how much of it is, is because of how we react to, to the threat of disease. Because I I was kind of, I was like one one of the the things I was trying to parse out in, in trying to get an understanding on, on what we've talked about here was basically that uh, was, was this a case of parasite stress is only affecting those um, who are, being stressed about or they're that they're they're watching the the news sources or or the public health experts that are telling them um hey be careful social distance etc etc um and i was wondering if the fact that conservatives were just not paying attention to that in in a lot of ways especially in america where there's such a a divided news landscape is is parasite stress also influenced then by like your perception of the the prevalence of infectious disease like if you didn't know there was infectious disease there would you still be um yeah would you still be affected by this um by this idea or this this sort of uh, yeah uh, effect let me go back to one basic about how the how the psychological mechanisms involved here work okay and how yeah. they develop so you got a kid growing up and uh, the kid is in a, uh, an ecological setting. Uh, he lives in a place that has lots of infectious disease. So the kid will uh, get some of those infectious diseases. And he will get these diseases. His immune system, classical immune system, will be activated, maybe activated a long time. That information is read by the psychology of interest here. So we have these psychological adaptations that are functionally specific to acquiring the values that are suitable for the local level of infectious disease. So if he's, he's, he's growing up under high infectious disease, uh, his immune system history in that ecological setting of high infectious disease is part of the information. Other information is all the lore and so forth about infectious disease. So if you grow up in rural India, you got all this cultural information about infectious disease, 
what to eat, what not to eat, all that kind of stuff. If you grow up in, um, if you grow up in uh, New Hampshire, uh, you don't have all that uh, infectious disease information and so forth. Different culture. So kids grow up under different levels of information about infectious disease, including the information that is uh, part of their experiences with local infectious disease. So that, that's, a, that's a big component of the proximate causation of values. So proximate causes are those that act uh, during an individual's lifetime. And, you know, I mentioned that it's, it's a scientific theory also about the ultimate causes of our values. But where that comes in is evolution by natural selection, built psychological adaptations that specialize in the acquisition of values that are defensive against the local level of infectious disease. So uh, we have these psychological adaptations. You know, a familiar, a familiar one is uh, language acquisition. So we have psychological adaptations to acquire language. And um, we do that as kids. We, we these psychological mechanisms sift all the noise out there and eventually the kid talks. Uh, these specializations we're talking about for value acquisition are, uh, are specializations for value acquisition, not specializations for language. And um, so, um, so, you know, evolution by natural selection has built humans to acquire the values that work against local adversity. If you have high infectious disease, you uh, acquire uh, conservative values, low infectious disease experiences growing up, liberal values. Liberal values are fantastic for uh, you know, lots and lots of benefits. You have a bigger social group with liberal values, your you, bigger mating pool, you're fine, <laughs> with people, you're fine with people have different values from you, different colors. Uh, different ways of thinking, all that stuff for liberals. So the tremendous benefits, but um, those benefits uh, are, are, are not uh, net benefits under high infectious disease. So you, you, know, you have, uh, they're costly under high infectious disease. So that's a little bit more uh, about it. Now, where, so what else do you, uh, do you think I've missed? Um, so basically, uh, I'm just I've I've been trying to yeah just get a handle on whether like if you if if say you took someone out of like a, a rural country with high infectious disease like you took them from say like Peru and you put them in rural Canada where parasite stress just is probably not something they're concerned no. like that there's not there's not having an effect because oh you just take them and put them there yeah right so now. say say they moved yeah. like would it would that in that moment, have it like over, say, the next couple of years, have an effect on how their how would the, oh, would yeah. the effects of parasite stress like dissipate? So, is it like a totally like where you are? Like, because obviously you've mentioned that there's like the ultimate causes, and that's the more sort right. of like beyond the human lifespan sort of time scale that you're talking about here. But I'm, evolutionary history. Yeah, yeah, but I'm just I'm curious as to just how how much effect this has the upon people. The implication for mm. your say your experiment, you take one from. A person from Guatemala, where a lot, you know, infectious diseases are just rains parasites down there, up to say uh, Canada. Mm -hmm. 
um, that's a big change in infect average infectious, to say the least, because infectious diseases follow the latitudinal gradient so strongly. And um, diseases like it moist and, and uh, moist and hot in general. Most, most of our 1,400 infectious diseases in humans like it moist and hot. So the implication is, yes, that person's uh, values would change. And we know that we can get a person to go from to go more conservative just by showing them 10 slides mm. or making them read a, a, a fake uh, news clip about how uh, COVID is. And, you know, that gets them more conservative immediately. No experiments have been done on the diff on the opposite direction. So can you liberalize people by showing them uh, slides of, of healthy people or something like that? Uh, what, surfaces. That hasn't been done. And surprisingly, that has not that research has not been done. Can you shift them the other way? Has not been done. You can shift them to more conservative by showing them immediate disease threats. Um, and those studies were very nicely controlled. It's 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 cool. It's the shifts to more conservative are specific to disease threats. Researchers have used all kinds of other slides that have kind of threats in them and stories about uh, you know tornadoes, weather uh, 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 issues, and so forth. Threats. Mm -hmm. The shifts are specific to infectious disease threats that people process and see. And um, so that's pretty cool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the implication for your experiment, imaginary experiments you, you uh, mentioned is yes, uh, they would shift. Okay. Uh, they would shift. So what's going on around the world now with all the COVID, of course, is things are getting more conservative in general. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that's going on and being measured and so forth. You have some uh, studies that are coming out now in the scientific literature where you take big samples of people. Much of this is uh, web-based uh, questionnaires and so forth that you can get uh, thousands, hundreds of thousands in some people. And you look at uh, average values of people at the beginning of COVID and then two months later and six months later and so forth increases. It's so like that's really, going is up. it really demonstrable? Because I mean, I've been, I've been also it's trying to parse out. Yeah. yeah. Demonstrable in the sense of being statistically significant, mm -hmm. which is demonstrable in a meaningful yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, I like part of me can't, can't figure out because I've, I've watched the conservative party in Britain, for example, uh, poll at 40% plus for the entire length of the pandemic, despite I don't think there's anyone who thinks they did a good job and yet they're still polling as the largest party. And I, yeah. I've, I've been like trying to figure that out. It's like, is it because the opposition is so useless or are we seeing like parasite stress happening in real life where people want the, because the, yeah. the, the party is coming along with a lot of what would be very sort of traditional, like right wing strongman kind of policies. Like they're very, very hard on um, refugees, on migrants trying to come to Britain, yeah. um, just yeah. on on that sort of like that that aspect of things, like the the borders thing, which I, I'm aware is um, something that's like quite a strong signifier for um, more right wing political thought. So they're coming along with all that, and it yeah. it seemed to me like there might be a, like quite a strong link there. But again, it's it's difficult to figure out exactly what's influencing what. You know? Yeah. Well, with regard to immigration and. Uh 
you know, immigrant issues and all that. The, I mean, you know, there's, there's conservatives that, if highly conservative, just keep them out. Hell, if you have to, kill them. If you, you know, that highly conservative thing, take the kids uh, away from the parents and then the, the parents won't be trying to get to border as they tried to do in the U.S. back during Trump. They took the kids away from the parents coming mm-hmm. through Mexico. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they're still trying to figure out, you know, put the kids back with parents and so forth. It's a total disaster. Yeah. So they'll do anything. Liberal minded people uh, in general, if you ask them, you know, about their question, their uh, ideas about how to handle immigration and so forth, they want a more principled uh, uh, information based program for for doing it. Not just uh, those people are subhuman, get rid of. It's a it's a different it's a different way of looking at immigration. Mm. I mean, it's 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 not, that, it's not that liberals, you know, will say just let everybody in. It's it's a more uh, it's a more thoughtful, so to speak. Yeah, uh, you know, with a more humanistic. Mm. Way. I mean, it's been interesting watching during the pandemic how uh, the folks again who are very open borders have then become the ones who have gone who have become the biggest supporters of, of like the public health measures. Um, I find yeah. that this is, this is wonderful. And yeah, again, baffling paradox in, in this, that, that we have like the, this is what I meant by like this sort of weird flip that I'm, I'm looking at. Cause like traditionally a lot of those markers of left and right political thought are remaining. And like, if you look at the border issue, like we we've talked about here, yeah. those, those who have been, uh, traditionally always in support of like open borders and a, uh, a very humane refugee policy um, yeah. who would yeah probably be in favor of like the, the dreamers and, and things like that. Yeah. They've Those remained, are more liberal yeah, folks. Yeah. So they've, but they've remained uh, like equally open to open borders during this time when they have, yeah. at least in my mind, been undergoing the effects of parasite stress, which seems like it should shift their attitudes on these things. But it doesn't seem to be in a way. Do, do, do you know what I'm? Do you see what I'm? I'm trying to. Well, get? You have to. Yeah. Uh, actually, Josh, with that kind of stuff, you have to measure it. And uh, political scientists, and you know, emphasize it. You can't necessarily tell what a person' uh, values are until you measure them. So, a person will say, "I want this and that," and I'm highly liberal and so forth. But unless you measure that person's values. Uh, using their procedures and so forth, you just don't know. And countries are the same way. I mean, you know, China claims it's a democracy and, <laughs> yeah. and various uh, countries in Africa claim to be democratic republic of this and that, and they have no <laughs> idea what democracy is. Uh, yeah. And, you know, so so you have to really measure it. And the information that I mentioned briefly uh, the studies that are coming out where you where you ha- are measuring big samples of people. Now, nothing has been done in the UK per se in this regard, mm-hmm. but other most, most of it's US based still. But uh, uh, people are getting in general uh, more more conservative. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I would be very surprised if that's not the case in those people you're talking about. If you measured their um, values say a year ago and now uh there would be a a shift regardless of what they say about immigration Mm. yeah 
Yeah, I mean, like even just personally, I can't tell where I've if I've shifted. It's it's interesting yeah. when you try and apply this to like your own philosophy yeah. because right. I find myself listening to or at least not dismissing in the same way that I would have a lot of right wing commentators over the past year. Yeah. But I can't tell if that's just because like uh, the ones who I would have previously listened to, I I don't know, I'm not having the same respect for or um, because I, I don't feel like I've changed my well, values. My guess, yeah, my guess, my guess of you is that you're open, you're an open minded individual. So you're looking for information. And with highly conservative people, it's black or white. There's, you know, I got this way of thinking. It's the way my granddaddy thought and all that kind of stuff. And that's all that's all I worry about. I don't want to hear anything new. You're you're gathering information. And um, because of the way your value system works. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's partially I'd say my mom told me this hilarious story about when I was young recently. And she was like, you know, I could never get you to do anything. And I until I explained why it's like I, she always had to reason, even with a five year old, she had to explain what I why. <laughs> That's right. You aren't very authoritarian. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't. Yeah, I don't enjoy being told what to do. Yeah, authoritarian kid would say, yeah, of course. Yeah, <laughs> do it. Just do it. Yeah. Don't, don't maybe question the preacher don't question <laughs> i mean maybe maybe that's why um <coughs> you know parents like fantasize about when they see i don't know like little little like asian children or indian children they always seem to be really well behaved or at least in the stereotype yeah. maybe that's they what are. it is like they, they they literally like from like a value standpoint are more inclined to be yeah more receptive to parental authority i hadn't even considered absolutely that. sure mm. Mm. yeah absolutely more parasites yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh one of the things i was i was curious um about was i've uh listened to a, a fair few interviews recently about um this idea of ideas and concepts as uh as a virus so the like gad sad um sort of talked about it as like a where was it the the parasitic mind and yeah. um, there's just there's there's been a lot of crossover in the even just the terminology used here, um, especially yeah. when you talk about like the digital world and how ideas can spread virally, literally yeah. using the same word. I was curious as to whether you thought that there was this could be an uh, absurd uh, assertion, but whether you thought there was any uh, any possibility that like ideas or that seemed like dangerous viruses to people could then be seen to induce a level of parasite stress if they thought that the ideas were dangerous enough, especially when you look at like the, the, the poll in, in America that shows that like both sides of the political aisle see the other as like an existential threat to the, to the country. Yeah. Um, let's see. We have to get, I'm going to get basic with that. So the, the mind virus concept is kind of a spinoff or development of an idea that a colleague, uh, Richard Dawkins, developed a long time ago. He's a British evolutionary biologist. You know that name, mm -hmm. Richard Dawkins. Yeah, I'm reading one of his books at the minute. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, came up with, he called it the meme concept, meme concept. So this idea that uh, idea come along and people will grab it and it just, uh, um, you know, that's all. And it just, it's just a popular idea and it will spread from head to head and head to head. And uh, it has, has properties of the evolutionary process, he claimed. 
But the modern view of how the mind works is contrary to all that. And the modern view of how the mind works is that uh, our mind is uh, built like the rest of our body, a bunch of specialization, specialized adaptations. The mind's adaptations are for acquiring information and using information that at least ancestrally promoted survival and reproductive success and just doesn't take in any old idea. So we, it's, our mind acquires information strategically. And that's what I was emphasizing with regard to values and with, with everything else. I mean, that's the way our minds work. So the, the mind virus, we can just pick up anything and it'll spread, um, uh, is uh, not a current concept of the mind. Okay. Yeah. I just, yeah. yeah. No, it was just, it was just something that I'd come across. I was curious it's as to God, what I yeah. God, uh, God is a colleague of mine and I know he's a friend too. And, <laughs> and he would agree with what I said about the nature of the mind. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had a great <laughs> chat with, um, with, um, Jeff Hawkins about his, uh, new theories on intelligence and, and sort of their, uh-huh. their new understanding about the, how the mind works is yeah, pretty much what you said is that it's a, yeah. it's a whole bunch of, it's the called the thousand bra- brain theory of intelligence. So it's like that there's like a thousand different little brains working everything out. Yeah, lots of specialized, uh, psychological mechanisms that are functionally specific in what they do for us. And, the functions uh, had, you know, ancestrally anyway, were uh, associated with survival and reproductive success. Absolutely. Mm. And we've done some stuff on uh, intelligence in, uh, in regard to the parasite stress theory. Yeah. Yeah. That's something actually that I, I wanted to get into here. So, oh, okay. um, because yeah, so the first thing that I was, I was curious about in there was, uh, so I heard, yeah, you, you, br- you brought this up in the, the interview with Dr. Peterson and uh you talked about yeah this idea that um high levels of parasite stress was uh correlated with iq levels and there was like an implication that it was because the brain is focusing its efforts on the disease or at least like keeping the disease away um compared to uh yeah yeah, not things i was yeah i basically wanted to try and get you to to like unpack that that idea and like what's causing that Sure, we did. Uh, we did a couple of studies uh, published in the literature now, and uh, one at the cross country level and one at the cross U.S. state level. And uh, in psychology, the measurement of IQ is a is a the study of IQ is a big topic in psychology. Has been a long time. So there are data on average IQ uh, across states of the U.S. and across all the countries of the world, basically. And um, so we, we reasoned uh, as follows, that um, if you live in an area of high parasite stress, you're going to have to be putting a lot of tissues and uh, res- bodily resources into the immune system. Both the classical immune system and the behavioral immune system have got to be good or you're going to die in an area of high parasite stress. So very strong uh, uh, allocation uh, uh, toward the immune system in areas of high infectious disease. And the immune system is extremely costly, as we say in biology, in terms of uh, uh, tissue and so forth, and to, in, to maintain it, to produce it and maintain the immune system, like to maintain your, your uh, I mean, uh, your immune system, you're, you're dealing with about 25% of your energy budget right now 
Okay, mm. even though you're well, even though you're well. really twenty five percent of my energy, like of the the calories that I like consume, That's are right. going to my wow. Go into maintenance. Your immune system is everywhere in your body, even in your skin and so forth. Okay. Lots of immune system. Okay, is that is that why? Sorry, is that why um, people who are malnourished tend to have a weaker immune system just because they're not getting the same yeah, level? It's of- strongly related to nutrition level, bad nutrition, bad immune system. But the uh, on the other hand, uh, the the uh, uh, nervous system is also extremely costly, especially in humans. We got these big, huge brains and uh, very complicated uh, uh, neural systems and extremely expensive to maintain your brain function during this show here that's 25 percent of your budget too mm. for a kid developing it's like 50 percent of the energy budget especially little kids about 50 percent of the energy budget and then all the tissues and so forth that's going into that so you've got two very very expensive systems to produce and maintain you got the immune system and the nervous system. The nervous system quality, of course, affects our cue. And um, so we reasoned as follows, that under high infectious disease, because it's so adaptive to put a lot into your immune system, that'll trade off with this other very expensive system, the neural development system. So high infectious disease, lower IQ. Low infectious disease, higher IQ is what we predicted. So we took the data from the literature, published literature on IQ across countries of the world and across states of the US and uh, the infectious disease data took that and uh, looked for the predicted uh, relationship, high infectious disease, uh, lower IQ, low infectious disease, higher IQ. And that's what we found at both the uh, cross country and the US state data. And in that, of course, in all these in all these studies I'm talking about, where we do cross cross uh, or comparative kinds of studies, in our analyses we control for uh, using standard analytical techniques, control for potential confounding variables. So, IQ researchers had various ideas about what causes IQ variation, of course. It's a big area of psychology, study of IQ. Mm -hmm. And so we go into the literature and we see what they think is causal and so forth. And we control those variables um, in our analysis. And uh, the the uh, cross-country relationship between infectious disease and IQ is almost perfect. It's like 0.82 and the highest a correlation can be is one. So and across states, seven. Yeah, there's huge relationships. Huge relationships. That's insane. So, because uh, I think did you not say um, that your the the correlation in par- between parasite stress and shifting political values was like 0. 0.7. So it's is is yeah, so it's it's even, yeah. So it's even more prevalent than that. Yeah, but 0. 0.7 is huge. Yeah, me. yeah. That's, and when, <laughs> you know, with every with all the confounds, uh, potential confounds. Uh, statistically controlled in that too. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's fascinating. So it is, it is. We were surprised it would be so strong. Mm. uh, Yeah. That's, that's so like, are we, are is the basic implication then of, of what we've discussed here is that if you want to liberalize the world, as the idea was through, through, through trade initially, like people said that, um, 
the yeah the liberalization of trade say with china would open them up and make them more democratic and more more like a western democracy and then you know the 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 authoritarianism would collapse basically was the the basic theory um yeah. and people have often said that you know you need to give people um money to get them out of um authoritarianism or there's you know there's there's loads of different theories about about yeah. how to to liberalize the world basically and make it less right. sort of dictatorial like you're su suggesting that one of the best things that that could be done in this field is to just make sure everyone has the best level of healthcare well yeah yeah among other things so basically the most fundamental uh thing to do if you wanted to liberalize the world. And again, uh, I emphasize, you know, I'm talking from a, a scientific point of view, so I'm not, I'm not judging the value system. Hmm. I'm just saying, telling you what our scientific studies and other scientific studies in this domain uh, indicate uh, is the answer to your question. And here it is. You, you start off, uh, with creating just liberating people, emancipating people from infectious disease. That's what you do, emancipate people from infectious disease. And this is uh, a good uh, start at that uh, was during the cultural uh, revolution of the uh, 60s and 70s. And that was a Western revolution. And lots of places outside the West haven't gone through one yet. Uh, because of infectious disease levels are high. But what happened in the West um, is, uh, and this, all these the medical researchers, uh, historians have have, uh, have studied all this a lot, and it's published in the literature and so forth, and we, we uh, make a big deal of it. And here's what happened. Beginning in 1920 in the West, there was chlorinated water uh, added to, uh, and it spread very rapidly in the West. And that knocked out all kinds of infectious diseases. I mean, that, that alone um, caused tremendous increases in longevity, reductions in uh, child mortality and so forth throughout the West. Mm. So that's 1920. Also in 1920, the first food handling laws uh, came so that uh, food, all food handling had to be more hygienic and so forth. And that was a big increase in uh, in uh, hygiene and reduction of infectious diseases too. Also in the 20s, uh, sewage treatment plants started in the West. Oh, this is just Western. Mm -hmm. In the West, sewage treatment plants and indoor plumbing, lots of indoor plumbing. And, you know, before people pooping out in the street in the back alley and that, that's, uh, uh, you know, public, public defecation. Um, but that was going on in the 20s and it increased, all that increased in the 30s. And then in the 40s, uh, after World War II, there was uh, good antibiotics, broad spectrum antibiotics that came along. And uh, again, it changed our world in terms of infectious disease uh, mm -hmm. tremendously. Uh, and also in the 40s, child vaccination programs started in the West and uh, requirement that you get the kids vaccinated and so forth. And there was very little opposition to that because mm. the conservatives weren't complaining about it. Conservative leaders weren't complaining about it as they did with the COVID vaccination. Mm. Uh, different world. Was yeah. 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 Different world. So all that's going on. So 
And then in the 60s, you had all these liberals in the West, young people that had grown up under relatively low disease levels for the first time in the history of humans growing up. They had uh, good water, clean water. They had, um, they had um, you know, uh, hygienic food they could buy at the grocery store. They had sewage treatment plants, toilets, uh, vaccinations, uh, all that stuff. Mm. Uh, also in the 40s. Um, Probably cleaner were, air as well. Well, yeah, cleaner air. But in the 40s, there was uh, pesticides, uh, good pesticides, chlorinated hydrocarbons, organophosphates that uh, killed a lot of vectors, mosquitoes and so forth. And it wasn't until about the 30s that people began to put screens on windows. So that kept out mosquitoes and so forth. And by the 40s in the United States, mid 40s, uh, malaria was just about gone, you know, where it was a big killer before that. I didn't even realize that malaria was in the States. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, yeah, now it's it's not endemic here now, of course. You get an occasional person with malaria that's coming in from a malaria place, mm. southern Mexico or various other places. Um, so, yeah. Um, so that, and then you got all those liberals. And what'd they do? They uh, opposed the war and very anti-authoritarian, to say the least. Uh, the hippies and so forth, that whole, that whole couple of generations, 20 to uh, 40 years, uh, human generations, about 20 years. So a generation or two after these health interventions, interventions, depending on the particular health intervention, you got all these liberal young people uh, coming along who were against uh, traditional government, uh, against war, uh, all for peace, make, make love, not war. Uh, the sexual revolution was part of that liberalization. Uh, the uh, uh, ethnic groups that had been, you know, been isolated and uh, closeted and so forth began to have rights um, and uh, civil rights, uh, feminist movement, all that stuff. Uh, women became real citizens all of a sudden, too, as part of that liberalization. So that's a good test case. Uh, for what you can do if you emancipate people from infectious disease, if that is your, is your goal. If you want to go back to highly conservative all the way to fascism, extreme conservatives, then crank up the infectious diseases out there. Mm. You know, uh, Make those poor people live in squalor <laughs> and so forth. Yeah. as they do in uh, authoritarian uh, autocratic governments yeah mm. so you're saying like uh, then ultimately the 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 that sort of falling apart infrastructure or uh you know not so great public health measures or anything like that that that's part of an author authoritarian regime is actually helping to entrench it in a way yeah it's helping the infectious disease the way it works is you get you get uh, with uh, with highly conservative governance. We can talk. We've done a lot with governance variation. Mm -hmm. uh, governance, you know, the political scientists. That's a big area of political science. And governance varies from highly democratic to highly autocratic. And they've measured this. There's 
uh, five measures of uh, democracy said differently of autocracy that political scientists use. They got measured across all countries of the world. And we looked at that in detail. And the more infectious disease, the more autocratic governments are. And the way it works is with, with uh, highly conservative uh, values, you get this dehumanization of people that are not in your in-group. Mm. So those people that can be a different color, they can be uh, uh, identified in various ways, different caste and so forth, but they're uh, not really human and you don't have to worry about them. So they have no rights, no liberties, no uh, opportunity, no education and so forth under high autocracy. So that helps the infectious diseases, but it keeps them down there because, you know, they're untouchable and so forth, basically, uh, in, in all these, you know, India, classical India being a, uh, a good example of the, but there are other, I mean, I grew up in the old South and it was uh, a caste system too. It was white, black caste. And uh, the white folks, uh, rich white folks, a lot of the, most of the white folks were poor and, uh, considered white trash too under the highly conservative government, but all those outgroup people, uh, you know, are just subhuman. We don't worry about them. Uh, we don't give them any rights or opportunities or uh, resources and so forth. That's the way autocracy works. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yes, this yeah the dehumanization thing is 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 like another thing that I feel like we've been seeing that this is this is what brought me to that like idea of the the mind viruses like having an effect here because. Um, because we've seen both sides of the political spectrum like increasingly dehumanize each other, to, uh, and and it's I, I, yeah. but still if you measure it, if you measure it, Josh, the liberals, they you know they're not dehumanizing in the same way <laughs> conservatives are. It's mm. a different. It's an entirely different animal. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I mean, well, I guess their de their dehumanization is aimed at different people ultimately. Yeah. Uh, so I get. Yeah, that's that's where the the major difference probably is. But uh, anyway, the last thing that I wanted to to ask you about was this correlation between um between Spanish flu deaths and oh, the, yeah. the 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 idea that we were gonna the, the, sorry the Spanish flu deaths and like voting for conservative or author authoritarian governments in the in the like sort yeah. of 20 30 years following that because so you'd mentioned it in in terms of uh Nazi Germany in your in yeah. your interview with uh with Dr Peterson and right. then I was curious as to cuz I know he asked about Italy but I, I was curious yeah. as to whether you had found if there was other data across Europe or or anywhere in the world that was affected by Spanish flu as to like that correlation that, uh, yeah. in the same way you'd seen it in, in Nazi Germany. Not for Spanish flu. I've looked. Uh, so Spanish flu levels. I mean, with Nazi Germany, it was so cool because they had the Third Reich uh, for some reason. They collected a lot of data on lots of stuff. And the University of Michigan has these um, has these data, and it was by city. So the uh, death rate from Spanish flu in a German city predicted the twenty years later the support for uh, Nazism, the vote, the percentage of people that voted for the Nazi Party, and um, that was by city in Germany. <clears throat> There's nothing like that. So Japan was under hot, real high uh, uh, flu levels, Spanish flu levels, as was Italy. 
uh, during you know, the rise of fascism in those places. Uh, and uh, Mussolini, uh, Mussolini, for example, he was ex- he was just like Hitler, a real uh, germaphobe, uh, as was the uh, the king of Japan at the time. But um, <laughs> that's stunning that all three of those authoritarian leaders had the same. Oh yeah. Event. And all that Spanish flu. And uh, but there's no there are no data like in Japan of different cities and the voting and that kind of thing, nor in Italy, uh, like there was in Germany. But the but Mussolini, he outlawed handshaking. He said it was the most disgusting thing to touch another person's hand. And so he went with the Roman salute. The Roman salute is the Nazi salute, you know. Uh, Hitler adopted it too. Hitler so that was it. Mussolini first. In Roman. <laughs> Rome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that makes yeah, that makes sense actually. The Italian <laughs> yeah, doing the bet. Roman salute. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that's the nature of that. But this stuff being done now and pub- and being published is uh, smaller uh, but in the same direction. So you you just take a bunch of people and you uh, give them a COVID, give them a COVID threat. Okay. COVID's rampant in your city or neighborhood or whatever. Uh, a lot of hosp- increased hospitalization and so forth. And they vote for, they, they support. And you ask them uh, of these candidates here, we've done this in the United States. You got, you got Trump, you got Biden, uh, some, you know, some Democrats and Republicans. And uh, when they, when they see these threats, they, um, when they read these threats, they vote more, uh, they indicate greater interest in conservative candidates. Same sort of thing done in France and Poland. Yeah. Mm, that's so fascinating. Like it's, yeah. it's, uh, someone, someone left a, like a comment here, um, that Dr. Thornhill is hitting me with some perspective here that my political beliefs possibly have root in enjoying a clean environment relative to uh, previous generations is it's, it's, I still can't get my head around this, the, the, the idea that like you could see it on a city by city level as to the, the places that got the worst Spanish flu deaths were then the people who were most likely to vote for Hitler. Like I just, it's, it's cause I, yeah, I studied it a lot. Like I, I had to, I studied Nazi Germany a lot in school just because oh, that was yeah, our, fascinating. It's that, fascinating. Yeah. And that yeah. was our, just and, our curriculum, but th- th- this yeah. was never, yeah. Spanish flu was never mentioned. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the kind the traditional thinking uh, of political science and so forth about fascism, uh, those, those fascisms, uh, the big three mm-hmm. at the same time was that, you know, well, the, the, the economy was bad. People were just desperate and they bought all that crazy stuff uh, just because they were so desperate. But this, this German study, uh, the study of uh, Nazi Germany, the rise of Nazi Germany, they had data on, um, on uh, employment in all the cities, average employment, average wages, and those didn't uh, predict the vote at all. It had nothing to do with economic level, had nothing to do with variation in economic level, the rise of Nazi Germany. Like none, so what's, none cool. whatsoever. No, no relationship with the economic variables that, these, that this guy was able to pull from the data set uh, 
of uh, all those cities. Yep. Mm. He also, they also had, well, maybe it was just uh, extremist voting for some reason, some mm. bizarre reason, just going extremist. And the Nazi party was extremist at the time, mm. but so was the communist party. And there were communists on the ticket. Those guys didn't get the votes. <laughs> uh, it wasn't just an extremist kind of voting pattern that put uh, Hitler in, uh, in, uh, as a king. Mm. Yeah. Cause I've and seen, yeah. If, if, if you studied Nazi, you know how, what a germaphobe he was, you know? Mm. Yeah. 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 I mean, well, that's, that's only <laughs> like from, Trump. Yeah. From research. Yeah. That's true. Actually. Trump is like yeah. that too. I hadn't yeah. even, I hadn't even thought of it in that, in that sense. Um, like what's interesting there about what you're saying as well is that, uh, so a lot of people like the stereotype of the Trump voter was very much like this, like poor, like backwoods, you know, yeah. redneck basically. And I think as far as I'm aware, like the data was showing that, okay, whilst those demographics did vote for, for Trump, that there was also yeah. like a, a very substantial portion of more affluent, like sort of upper middle class people that were voting for Trump as well, um, which is, yeah, it's really interesting. I would really love, like, I would, uh, yeah. Can you send me that study so I can link it with the, the one you were talking about with uh, the sort of state by state analysis of of uh, infectious disease and then Trump voters, I think it was, you said? Yeah. So um, let's see. The first study, the first study of Trump support was uh, done by a magazine, The Economist. Do you guys read The Economist magazine over there? Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's international. It's, it's, uh, they do a good job. They're interested in, in data and so forth. Um, and they showed that the first study showed that the Trump support by county, this is U.S., uh, Trump support was associated with, um, with low education levels in um, low education levels. Then another follow-up study said, well, what would the parasite stress theory uh, say about Trump support? And they showed that um, the sicker the county, the sicker the people were in the county, the more Trump support. And the sicker the county levels illness, uh, there's an there's a outfit at the University of Washington that does, a, does a, every few years, they do a county, county level uh, wellness analysis and so forth. So the sicker the county, the more Trump support. And that's uh, certainly supported by the more recent stuff on infectious disease levels at the county level uh, being associated with Trump support. Mm -hmm. So although you do get, it's, it's mainly, uh, you know, people living in uh, high, high infectious disease and without, without much health care and so forth that are his, uh, his big supporters. And, but you do get some middle-class people too, yeah. but uh, more middle-class and upper-class, more educated people uh, are on the liberal end, democratic end of things anyway. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it, this kind of explains like the Kentucky um, paradox. Like, I can't. The, I, I've seen a lot of people sort of be like, "How do Kentucky continue to vote in Mitch McConnell when the healthcare sucks? Like that, that people are like dying because of the the quality of healthcare." I mean, I'm not. I'm not. I don't know exactly how accurate that is. Yeah. I've just, but I've seen but, this argument made at least, yeah. um, and uh, it makes a lot more high, sense. Half infectious disease, mm. you know. In the U.S., 
Well, everywhere in the world, the disease level uh, follows the latitudinal gradient. So the lower the latitude, the more infectious disease. Equator is the worst place for parasites, parasitic diseases. Mm. And then as you move north and south, either direction from the equator, uh, infectious disease levels go down. So the southern United States um, has more infectious disease than other parts of the U.S. This is why... The uh, you had the old South where I grew up, you know, the Alabama, uh, uh, Mississippi, Louisiana, Florida, Georgia, the Carolinas, Kentucky, Tennessee, Texas, Arkansas. Those are the really high infectious disease places still. Mm. And the more, you know, they're Trump states. Yeah. Almost. yeah. So, right. This is the last. So then, yeah, I'm, I'm aware of taking a lot of your time. I really appreciate the. The, oh, yeah. sure. Nice talking with you. Yeah. So the, the, the last thing that I want to ask is something that's just popped into my head here is that is uh, a warming planet that theoretically has more infectious disease than because of the, yeah, the temperature. Uh, yeah. I've, I've seen the, there's quite, a, there's some, some talk in the, in the book, uh, Cascades, I think it is. No, what is it? The Uninhabitable Earth. And the chapter is called Cascades. And they talk about the the diseases and the level of disease that might sort yeah. of start to arise because the the planet is yeah warming. Yes, that's that's scientifically accurate mm. uh, projections predictions. Mm. Yeah. So is that yeah, going to lead to like a- some re- some regions are going to get wetter too. Some are going to get drier, and the drier uh, works against infectious disease. All else equal, but you can get dry areas. Um, as long, I mean, if the people don't have good sanitation and so forth, you know, uh, some areas of Iraq, for example, in the desert, uh, yeah. the, the people don't have any, uh, don't have any plumbing or anything. And so you got high infectious disease, but, um, but the wetter and uh, warmer, uh, the more infectious disease. Absolutely. So say if, if we don't do something about climate change, then in 200 years, uh, uh, you guys will have malaria will be endemic where you're where Europe even in Northern Ireland <laughs> malaria, malaria will be endemic and uh, you have hookworm and everything else over there. Ooh, well, but so is <laughs> yeah. that is that paradoxically going to mean as people get more conservative, as there's more parasite stress because the planet warms, yeah. that we are going to yeah. be less likely to do something about climate change because. Uh, we're becoming more right-wing and more or only, less more resistant if, to do this. We, only if we take, only if uh, if people do not take the parasite stress theory of value seriously and see that the the uh, they've really got to stay on top of infectious disease, or uh, the world is going to turn to uh, crap. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's a, that's a bombshell on which to finish things. Uh, Dr. Thornhill, I really, really want to thank you for your time. It's been, yeah, fascinating to yeah. talk to you. And, you- and Josh, tell me, uh, send me an email. Let me know what what it is you want me to send you, mm. okay? Yeah. yeah. I'm happy to send you whatever you want. Yeah, I, yeah, that, that would be fantastic. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll send that along. Um, is there anything you want to plug here for uh, people before we finish up? Uh, just that um, after interviews I've done um, – some people have want to contact me and ask me questions and so forth, and that's fine. My email, people can look me up on the internet, of course, and get my email, but I'll say it here. It's rthorn, rthorn, R-T-H-O-R-N, at unm.edu. 
Okay. I will put that in the description below for anyone listening sure. so people can. And that, I'm on the internet and all. They can look at my papers and uh, that sort of thing, uh, read my papers and uh, scientific papers and so forth. Yeah. Awesome. Well, yeah. Thank you very much for your time. Um, and yeah, hope everyone enjoyed uh, the, sh- the, the chat. Yeah. You just go to Google Scholar, put my name in, and all my papers are there. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I'll I'll do my best to, to link as many of them as possible for anyone. But yeah. Um, okay, thank th- you. Thank you very much, Randy. It's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget today's sponsor, How to See a Man About a Dog. For the reader looking for a wholly original and experimental mixed media approach to stories, How to See a Man About a Dog is a much-needed fever dream tour de force. It combines dark comic short stories, powerful poems, and pulp fiction prose to create a heartbreaking and hilarious journey that readers will not soon forget. Read How to See a Man About a Dog, collected writings for free with Kindle Unlimited, or get it at major retailers everywhere.